Listener Production. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. And yep, this is a new one, another new one, two New episodes of Willosophy in a row. What is happening? Is the podcast back? I don't fucking know. But for right now, I guess it is. For right now, in this moment, it is definitely back. And uh, very excited to have today's guest on. I've always been looking for the perfect opportunity to have this guest on the show. He's somebody that I talk to probably more than anybody else in the world. And so sometimes it's hard to uh, say to that person, hey, can you also come and talk to me again in a completely different format and forum? But fuck it, I've done it. I've got over that and I'm bloody doing it today. Uh, This is how the podcast starts, uh, my friend. I ask the guest who they are. So who are you? Uh, My name is Justin Troy Hamilton. I was born on the 20th of September 1972 and uh, I'm originally from Adelaide, come from a single mum background and uh, unfortunately somehow got stuck being a comedian. So, okay, well, let's let's start there then. (laughs) You've given us a pretty good summary. You've given us a pretty good previously on Justin Hamilton, but you use the expression, uh, what, unfortunately got stuck being a comedian? Is that what you just said? Yeah, it's it's such a funny thing because... you know, uh, comedy's been very good to mm. me, and it's uh, it's uh, an interesting uh, art form. I, I really enjoy it as an art form, but I've always prided myself on knowing when to leave a party early. It's always been something that I've felt really good about myself. We're looking and going, you know what? I'm going to leave now. I would rather almost be a bit disappointed that I left too early than stick around too long. And uh, I don't know, there's something about the comedy world where I'm, you know, I'm Al Pacino in The Godfather Part 3. Every time I feel like I'm out, something pulls me back in and it's, uh, I don't know how I feel about it, to be honest. It's interesting that you say that because this latest time that you've been pulled back in, and I am... Uh, a big believer in telling people that they can never leave comedy. Every time somebody tells me that they're leaving comedy, all I ever say to them is, yeah, 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 yeah good, 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 good. You'll be back. Yeah, You'll yeah. be back. Yeah, I'll see yeah, you yeah. soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You and Pete Hellier, the two of you, you say it in a way which fills me with existential dread. It's like, God damn it. I just know that there's nothing like it. And so I know that there's something that, engages you when you're uh, you're doing comedy. You are very good at it. So, like, it's interesting that you're having this conversation at a time, not in a time when you're in a career crisis, but in a time w- where your career has had a real renaissance, like both as a live performer, you know, you're back, you're doing a show, the show got nominated for an award in, uh, well, won an award in, in Adelaide, a weekly, like, you know, Fringe Award during the Adelaide Festival. You're working on, you know, my show, Question Everything. You're working on a whole producing on a whole bunch of other shows. Like your, your show is super creative and super funny and like really inventive and like you're good at it. Like you've come back and it's not like, oh, Oh, isn't this sad? Old mate's back and like, you know, (laughs) what's he doing here? We thought he'd left. It's the opposite. You come back and you just roll into town and you, you know, you're super good at what you do. Sure. I reckon that's part of the fear 
is like, in a way, you kind of wish you came back and you said, hey, what's up with men and women? Why are they different? And then someone said, you know, there's different genders now. You're out of date. And you go, great. Thank you. I don't have to do this anymore. But uh, I want to get to that. No, That's what we want to get to the point in, in comedy, by the way, where like that the because the version of you know men and women are different that like comedians had been trotting out for 30 years in this new like you know world where we have an appreciation of like you know different genders and different ways that people identify themselves we'll, we'll know that it's a truly accepting you know conversation when even that becomes hack oh look at this yes. <laughs> like he's doing the difference between <laughs> men and women and trans and non-binary people what hack material <laughs> that we all know <laughs> Uh, I hate to tell you, I remember when it was cutting yep. edge. I was there. <laughs> That's how I'll bore uh, some uh, young people with that kind of chat. But it's uh, – look, it, it's also really fun. I, I can't deny that being a stand-up comedian is fun. Uh, comedy and being funny have always been intrinsic to me as a person. Uh, and and I, I don't mean that in like e- – even as a kid – I knew that being funny was uh, many things. It was it was pleasing. I, I'm I'm a real people pleaser in many ways. Uh, sometimes to my own detriment. And making people laugh and seeing people uh, feel really good and having a good time made me feel really good. And I would feed off that. I also knew it was uh, a good way of getting out of a myriad of situations. Someone really sad, someone really struggling, finding the right joke at the right time that just breaks their thought process and and brings them back from the edge. I kind of knew that from a very early age. Uh, Also, you know, like I was a little guy uh, and, uh, you know, I used to play basketball amongst uh, a lot of tall people and uh, stronger people and, uh, you know, Comedy would get you out of a lot of situations. Like no one really wanted to fight you because you 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 made them laugh. Like you were you you were popular because you were the funny guy. And so, uh, in many ways, comedy was really good to me. From a and and just being funny on some level uh, was really handy. And I and I knew how to be funny for people who knew me. And then eventually, I think uh, comedy is the skill of being funny for people who don't know you. Do you remember, like, and I don't remember this, so, like, it might be an unfair question to ask somebody else, but do you have a first memory of when you were funny? Do you remember a time, like, you know, making a whole bunch of people laugh or one particular person laugh that really sticks in your memory as you you discovering this power that being able to make a joke had? Uh, I, I don't know if I can re- – like, I can remember a few – so I remember in grade two in uh, Mrs. Richardson's class, we were performing a little play and I had to jump in as a, as a cowboy mm. with a gun. <laughs> and while I was standing in the passage uh, waiting for my cue, I realised that when I flicked the gun, the, the barrel would snap and point down. Yeah. And I thought, hello, <laughs> here we go. And so when I jumped in for my spot, I said my line, flicked my wrist, the gun pointed down and I shot my own foot. And everyone thought that was the yeah. funniest thing in the world. And I've, you know, in, in all honesty, if you look um, back and probably talk to my grade two friends, I was upstaging them. But in my point of view, I was getting some good laughs. So I was pretty happy with that. Uh, I also remember in grade three, my first song parody. I can still remember it. 
So the song, do you remember the uh, Let's Sing books yeah, that used to go around? I do. Yeah. <laughs> so the song was uh, Make the Puppet Dance, Dingle Dangle, Careful Not to Get It in a Tangle, You Can Make It Jump and Twist, All You Have to Do Is This, So Make the Puppet Dance, Dingle Dangle, and I changed it to, and hold on to your socks, people, <laughs> Make My Dick Dance, Dingle Dangle, Careful Not to Get It in a Tangle, You Can Make It Jump and Twist, All You Have to Do Is This, So Make My Dick Dance, Dingle Dangle, and that killed in Ms. Burgess's class in grade three. That was that was a scorcher. Yeah, I do remember around grade five or six being at a school camp and like it wasn't even me. Like it was some other kid who discovered that uh, peanut butter Vegemite could be changed to penis butter Vaginamite and that kid was yeah. king of the school for a fair while. <laughs> Where is he? Let's find him. <laughs> he might have been the first. <laughs> So uh, then I also remember uh, in grade four, I had Miss Burgess, uh, grade three and grade four, uh, we had a, a, a new kid come to school and um, they were very upset uh, because they're, um, they'd had something bad happen in their family and they'd had to move school. And so, uh, and I just couldn't cope with it. <laughs> I couldn't cope with how sad this person was. And I, I spent, you know, I, I, I spent the first week like, you know, Bluto in Animal House, just kind of, hey, <laughs> come on, you know, trying to get them back on track kind of thing. So, um, yeah, comedy was kind of all – but I also liked the people who were funny as well. Like I, I liked the people who were deliberately funny and I liked the people who were inadvertently funny. Like my mate Arthur Caritas in grade five when we were talking about racism with Mrs Southwell and he just said very seriously – and I, I knew he was being very serious and I knew the topic was very serious, but this just was so funny to me. He said – Mr. Southwell, I don't mind when people call me a wog because that just stands for world organised guy. <laughs> and it was such a good way of dealing with racism. Uh -huh. But even intrinsically at that point, I thought that was hilariously idiotic and I uh, really enjoyed it. But not, I wasn't judging him. I just was like, that's great, you know. So I, I, I like being around those people as yeah, well. Yeah, being around funny people. So, okay, so this um – when did you then discover that maybe the comedy community was something that existed? Let's do a little quick chronological order of it. So you become a teenager, you're living in Adelaide, you're interested in making people laugh, you're interested in writing. Is that is that what you think your passion's going to be? Like, do you have other aspirations, like while you're at high school, about what you might do as a career? Nah. I uh, <laughs> in, uh, I I knew I wanted to write from the age of grade three. I knew I wanted to be a writer, and uh, and once again, Ms. Burgess, who was a incredibly uh, wonderful teacher, a, a wonderful teacher that I had, who was very encouraging, and uh, uh, she called my mum one night and she complained. She didn't complain. She just rang up to tell my mum, "Hey, you." It, it, Justin's meant to have written a short story and it was meant to be in uh, like four days ago. And mum was like, oh, well, I can't believe he hasn't done his homework. He feels like he's mm. been doing his homework. I'll I'll get him onto it. And Miss Burgess was saying, no, 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 no. No, it, it, he's still mm. writing it. And it was like 10 pages. And it was like, in all honesty, I, if, I've been looking for this for so long. I have a feeling it was essentially Boba Fett in Raiders of the Lost Ark. But I was... <laughs> That's what I was writing. So, um, so I always wanted to be a writer, uh, and uh, I spent a lot of time alone. I'm an only child. I spent a lot of time by myself. Uh, I did a lot of reading, and uh, so that that always uh, the the idea of um, uh, creating something that someone can read and 
and be lost in it or always appealed to me. So uh, come high school, uh, there's there's this explosion in comedy. Mm. You know, there's uh, the young ones were just this magnificent explosion in my life. Uh, a, a friend of ours of my family had uh, a VHS tape that they'd uh, gotten in the UK when they were visiting family, came back and sort of said, you haven't even heard of this series, but check this out. And it was the University Challenge episode of The Young Ones. And I was like, well, what? like, it was genuinely like watching something go, what is happening here? And I also loved Robin Williams and I loved him in movies and that. And I bought his Live at mm-hmm. the Met on vinyl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, had to, you had to swap it over to get the other half of the routine. I couldn't believe someone could talk and be funny. I was also a big fan of things like the Marx Brothers, etc. But uh, there was this, and I, I feel like this is a very similar story for a lot of people of our age. The absolute uh, Australian comedy explosion, you know, like you had the comedy company, you know, you had that kind of stuff, uh, which, you know, was definitively funny in its day. Uh, you had uh, the D-generation, you know, when the D-gen were just the D-gen. I was uh, really into that. Um, Rob Sitch no, I, was, You know, the uh, D-generation, I, I, my love of the pun, and like I, I yes. still have a great affection for a pun because they – yeah. They loved a pun and being able yeah. to dress up a pun as a big bit. And there's still this sketch I remember where it's like I think it's a a couple at a restaurant. Like I mean I might not be getting the exact details of this but I'll I'll get the the general vibe of it. So basically restaurant scene, couple on a date and I, I believe – so she's got long hair and he's sitting there and he's eating a sandwich but like her hair is like in – his sandwich. So like, it's already quite a bizarre scene, right? Like where he's like, her hair's in between two slices of bread and he's eating it. And then like, there's just silence while he eats it. And then he just looks up and he goes, you know, I think I prefer your hair in a bun. And that's it. That's just the great. whole bit. And I believe there was like, <laughs> there might've been balloons that dropped from the like roof or something. Like it was one of those things where like they were kind of celebrating how bad the pun was, but also celebrating how great the pun was. And I, that, that to me is one of my yeah. earliest comedic memories. Yeah. Yeah. The DJ were so fantastic. It was kind of like I went from the goodies to Kenny Everett to the D generation and the young ones. And then uh, the big gig hit. And uh, I was a, I was just a fan of everyone on that show. But specifically, I would wait for the empty pockets to go into the Doug Anthony All-Stars. And I was, um, there was something so naughty about the big gig. They, 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 and they were smart, but they could also, it's, it's where high art met low art. You know, you could, you could have a, a reference to, uh, you know, Joe Orton. Whether the All Stars would test you, we're going to do a joke about Joe Orton, and if you don't get it, we're going to judge you and give you shit jokes. And then they do the joke, and everyone would laugh because the big gig had a smart audience, and they still told the audience they were dumb, and then did <laughs> shit jokes, and that was really funny to me. Um, so, uh, so I was writing a lot of short stories at this point, and uh, the the All Stars, uh, Paul, Tim, and Richard uh, ended up doing some work for my mum. Uh, mum used to work for the Walk Against Want and she uh, booked them to uh, be ambassadors and they were great. They came out and they said um, for every for every step forward that everyone does to raise money for the Walk Against Want, uh, the All-Stars were going to take a step backwards to keep money in Australia. <laughs> <where it belongs." laughs> 
which is still <laughs> extremely funny to me. It was front page of the advertiser. It was great. Um, but uh, mum was young when she had me. So, uh, you know, she was like 35 at this point. And they, they, mum said, can I bring my son? And they were like, yeah, no worries. And then I turned up and I was like 16. <laughs> and I think they were expecting like, you know, 10, 11 yeah. year old kind yeah. of thing. She was, she was going to rock um, up with a baby Bjorn. And then suddenly, <laughs> yeah. she was like, oh no, he's almost an adult. Yeah, he's he's uh, he's close mm. to voting, and um, they were very nice to me. I remember that, uh, you know, because I was pretty nervous, and uh, and I wanted to impress them, as you do when you're a young young. Person. Do you remember much about the interaction? Can you like? Do you know like who you talked to first? Like what you might have said? Is there any? Do you, do you have any memories of any of that? Yeah, uh, so I think uh, if I remember correctly, it was Richard first, and Richard was uh, a sweetie. And then um, Tim was very big. He was very funny. He was very big in his in the way he talked to me. And then I spoke to Paul, and Paul was very uh, shy. And um, and I, I I felt a need to tell all three of them that I got the Joe Orton joke because <laughs> I wanted to prove to them that I got their stuff. And I and then. You know, uh, at, at that time I was reading uh, a lot of Alan Moore and Alan Moore had, uh, through his comic book Miracle Man, introduced me to uh, the works of Frederick Nietzsche, which I was trying to plough through. And so I was trying to speak Nietzsche to Richard. And Richard, once again, like I don't reckon I had anything correct, but you wouldn't have known that from the way Richard treated me. And it was very nice. But uh, eventually, uh, you know, we, we got to see them when they tour and, and eventually uh, Richard asked to read one of my short stories and he said it was really funny and that I should get into comedy because, you know, you can have an idea and you can write a joke and then you can do it on stage immediately, whereas you can spend a lifetime writing a book and, you know, maybe nobody ever reads it and he and he turned out to be correct in so many different ways yeah so it's interesting to me though because writing as you said has definitely always been your passion or your base or whatever it is you know the prism through which you see yourself I think and I think that sometimes when you have this weird relationship with stand-up is that you know I, it's, I really relate to it because I think it's this, a similar relationship to I have to TV or to other projects that I do that aren't stand-up. Because for me, stand-up is my writing. Like, you know, I've written books and I don't consider myself to be a writer, even though like my entire career is based on me writing things. Like, I don't consider myself to be a writer. I consider myself to be a stand-up. And when I am yeah, writing a book, I feel like I am like I enjoy it and it's interesting, but I don't feel like I'm an author. I'm going to book festivals and stuff and I don't feel like I should be there. And, you know, it's the same a bit with television. I think part of the reason I don't like to go to awards and stuff when it comes to television is that I'm just like, what am I doing here? Like this, does, this doesn't just make sense to my brain. Like, and that doesn't – but I enjoy making television. I just – it's just not – and so is there some similarity to that, do you think, about stand-up in that sometimes, even though you're very good at stand-up and that you like doing stand-up, that sometimes you're like, but this isn't 100% the thing that I wanted to be doing? Uh, yeah, I think so. I don't think it was like that to begin with because to uh, to discover how to – make stuff work in a, in a broad aspect is, is really time-consuming and it's, uh, it's really hard. I don't think I'm very good. I think I'm good. Like, I think I get the job done. But, yeah, there's just I, – I, what I worry about 
is, and especially as I kind of get older, and I, I have to, I also have to stress, I don't feel old. Like it's it's quite shocking to me that I'm fifty because I feel quite energetic and I feel quite. Uh, I've maintained a curiosity about the world, and and I've let go of um, many aspects that I think are important to let go of as you get older. Like, um, you know, I, I think cynicism is a great trait for the youth, but I think if you hold on to that as you get older, it uh, eventually eats away at you. And um, I managed to, uh, you know, I, I'm not saying I don't have cynical moments, but I am not cynical and uh, I have managed to expunge that. I think it's from my great advice to, like, when you're young, it is absolutely acceptable to start to define yourself by what it is that you don't like. You know, sometimes, like, sometimes while you're working out what you do like, a good way is to just start ruling out things you don't like and start to define yourself that way. But there's got to be a point where you start defining yourself by what it is that you do like and you do get enthused about not just what you don't like. And I think in a general sense, that's like an evolution of life that can be incredibly tricky. But if you don't go that way, it ends up completely destroying you. Yeah, I think so, uh, especially emotionally. And uh, and by the way, when I talk about liking things and not liking things, I'm not even talking about what you would probably be your go-to, thinking about pop culture. I'm like, if, if, if you don't like eating chicken, then that's fine as well, even if someone decides to have a crack at you about it, that's fine. And if you do like rock melon, that's fine. You know, it's all – it's – it, it is whatever it is. So, um, but yeah, so I guess just kind of getting back to that point is uh, I've had, there's there's other things in, in the world of writing that I love and there's other goals that I've had. And, you know, in, in many ways, stand-up has not been, for, for a while there, it was very good for me. And then at times it's been extremely bad for me. And... Uh, you know, I would like to the contra- I'm I'm full of contradictions, and there is a part of me that desperately wants to belong to a community, and there's a part of me that never wants to be seen again. Mm. So <laughs> that is, you know, there there is a part of me that always wanted to be a father, and and now and and I am not a father. You know, there is this there's there's I'm a mess of contradictions, and so there are other aspects of life where I would like to create works because. Uh, they would exist more naturally in those places. But I don't know. To be honest, I don't know if I can access them at this age. Uh, so I ask people on this show whether they have a life philosophy of any kind. It can be in relation to work, life, love. It doesn't really matter what it's in relation to, but just I ask the question to see if somebody has one. Do you Do you have one? Um, I don't know. Like I'm in many ways – like I don't like uh, labels and I don't like boxes. And as You'd I said, hate my downstairs uh, at the moment because there's a lot of boxes with labels on them. So <laughs> See, this is where we needed a whole bunch of balloons to drop and Rob Stitch to come out. And so you, you've mastered it. You've mastered it, boys. Um, the uh, the uh, I think. I don't. I don't really subscribe to anything. I, in, in many ways, I'm agnostic and I'm, I'm existentialist and I'm a realist, but I, I think just doing your best by the people you're in contact with and yourself is the only way to kind of live life. 
Well, that's the only way I see it as well. And doing the best is uh, not judging other people and try not to judge yourself because you will make mistakes and that's all right. You can learn from the mistakes. Just don't just don't let the mistakes be the things that define you. And I, you know, sometimes you can live up to that and sometimes you can't. And I think it's the same with people as well. Like, you know, sometimes sometimes the worst people that we know will give you the best advice mm. or show you the most compassion. <laughs> and sometimes the people that you adore will cut you like you've never been cut before. Mm. So the world's messy. And so you don't want to align yourself with any one way of thought because you know, you'll just end up in a cul-de-sac of of regret or or you'll or you'll to, to keep up that way of thinking, you'll deny yourself the messiness of life. I, so what is easier to not judge other people or to not judge yourself? Oh, easier not to judge other mm. people. Like Jesus Christ. Like Fuck, I'm judging that I even just said that. So, you know. But, <laughs> but um, you know, I, I think uh, for the most part, people do their best and go through stages, etc. You know, but also at the same time, people are, are inherently selfish and and – that's okay too. Like that's that that's just what we are as individuals. So, trying to find the sweet spot in 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 that area is uh, kind of paramount to existence for me. Um, in regard to being judgmental of your own actions, so this I think this is a very interesting topic because it's something certainly that I've been wrestling with, you know, over the last sort of three, four, five years, which is this idea of on a broader scale. That, as you've said, everyone is fucked up and everyone has fucked up. Some people deliberately and some people accidentally, you know, and, and good people can do bad things. And as you said, bad people can do good things. And how do we move forward, not just in a, a non-binary way when it comes to things like gender, but in a non-binary way when it comes to the idea that, you know, nobody is, you know, completely good or completely bad. And even what those measurements are, are the judgments of others. Some people don't consider some acts to be as good or bad as other things. But I know personally that over the years, the person that I've become has often been shaped as much by mistakes that I've made. You know, sometimes when you've acted in a certain way or spoken to someone in a certain way or, you know, or whatever that might be. And you felt you've judged yourself, you know, you've sat in judgment of yourself. You are the judge, jury and executioner. And it has led to you being a better person in the future because that you were harsh in your judgment of how you behaved in the first place. But that's obviously not this, that you can't live your life constantly being in judgment of yourself. Also, it'd be terrible to live your life to never be in judgment of yourself because those people are just sociopaths who never judge their own actions or never think that they're in the wrong because, of course, there are times when we're all in the wrong. So how do you differentiate in a healthy way which is which? How do you know when, like, a moment is something that you should be reflecting on, that you should be judging yourself, that you should be holding yourself to higher standards versus one where you're like, I've spent a lot of time, you know, judging myself here for something that is a mistake that, you know, everybody makes? 
I felt like I had an answer mm. until you added the word healthy. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, answer it however you want to answer it. Uh, no, it, you know, it is. I think it's a, I think it's a really difficult thing to get right. So, you know, I, I think it can be like also even talking about it can sometimes make it too big as well. Like, you know, there's sometimes it can just be in a in a simple conversation. And you just realise that, I don't know, you were smelling yourself a little bit in the conversation or, you, yeah. you know, or yeah. you were just, uh, you were in too good a mood, um, you know, and then you look, look back on it and you go, ah, oh, that was a bit fucking harsh. That person didn't deserve that. Or, oh, you know what, I think that person probably needed something else from me at that point. But, and then, but then there's other times when, you know, like you've, you haven't been great with someone else, but you'll give yourself a pass because you know you weren't in a great place, and you know it's uh, and and it's hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's hard to get that right, and you know I spend uh, like I'm once again, you know, for for the majority of my life, uh, I've, you know, I've, people might not realize this, but I've, I've been very much a loner. And uh, and often feel alone, and e- even you know it's, it's a bit of a cliche, but even in really big moments, surrounded by friends, that's you know that's the moment where I'll be kind of removed from it, looking around, going, "What the what the fuck is happening here? <laughs> I don't really I don't really get it." Uh, so because I spend a lot of time alone, I have to be really careful about these things because. What I've taught myself, and big shout out to uh, my therapist, Dr. Piggott, um, is being practical with that way that you look at things. So do your best to take out the emotion, uh, take out that little boy voice that is desperate for attention and is desperate to be perceived and to be noticed and and try to think of things in a logical way. And And... What that means is sometimes sometimes the things that you can get hung up on can actually be hilarious, mm. like genuinely hilarious. I, I've, not, not to be one of those comedians who shoehorns some stand-up into a chat, but th- this came from lockdown one where I had a memory dream of a kid that I went to primary school with in grade five who used the term skit and I, I corrected him and said it was sketch and I remembered that. And I, I spent three weeks fighting the urge to find him on Facebook yeah. so I could explain it. And I, I and I knew that was insane, and I knew that was a ridiculous thing to do. And then I turned it into some stand up, and and now it's become something very funny. So you know, I'm not going to lose sleep over that. But they're the kind of things that pop into your head. But then sometimes, you know, there's, um, you know, there's sometimes you can give too much of yourself to someone, and uh, in the process, when you can't give any more. You, you've set the bar too high and you've and then you disappoint them more than anyone and uh you know that's why it's uh you have to look at your actions and go okay no like i was it it was almost pathological sometimes the desire to um be there for everyone because then you're not there for everyone and then you can't understand why people are getting upset with you so 
There's a bit of a theory when it comes to emptying out your email box that if you empty out your emails to zero, and that's something that I have quite a passion for, it actually trains people to the wrong response, which is that you are somebody who quickly replies to emails and therefore they can send you an email at any stage because you quickly reply to it. Whereas the people who don't reply to them actually get bothered less when it comes to emails, right? Yeah, yeah. There's an emotional version of that, I think, which is what you've just described, which is that if you spread yourself too thin in being there for everybody, when you take some of that away, then suddenly it feels like it, it, people notice that more than somebody who wasn't there in the first place, which is is awkward. How much of uh, how you feel in your head and in your life ends up being channeled through your work? Like, is that something that like is a direct thing is that something that because you i mean this is an interesting philosophy because you know you're you're the guest that i've had on this podcast that i know the most about you know we've spoke like you know, i'm trying to think of things that i have never actually directly asked you about you know not that would not only be interesting to the listener but i don't think i've ever asked you this because you know me like my my yearly show at the comedy festival serves a very central purpose which is at its very basic, it's just a summary of where where I think the world's at and where I think my my place in that world's at. It's my yearly catch up, you know, to to work my way though, through those two things in my work, and and that tends to be what the show is. You know, here are the things and themes, and you know this this year's show is very much about you know the fact that I got stuck inside a little longer than everybody else, and I had you know, a few failed attempts to get back outside again. And you can see that very much through the show. Like, you know, it's it was more evident. I didn't set, set out to write that show. I wrote a show and it was very evident that that's what the show was about. But I've never asked you directly because sometimes you're doing shows that are very high concept. Sometimes, you know, you're doing stand-up, you know, that isn't in that yearly cycle of a festival. You might have developed it for something else at a different time. How much of it is processing what's in your brain off stage and taking it on stage and how much of it just exists. Does that, is that, do you understand the question I'm asking? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's so I think, okay. So I think the best work that I've created is very much tapped into who I am and, uh, what I'm feeling at that precise moment. I have to stress, I don't think it's always my most successful <laughs> and whatever you want to define success by. Like it's uh, – but the stuff that I feel the best about uh, usually has tapped into how I'm feeling. So uh, I've always been uh, – one of the uh, funny kind of lessons I learned over time is uh, – this is why sometimes I get frustrated that I stayed in comedy because some of the the stories that I've expressed or the high concept shows that I've done maybe just should have been somewhere else yeah. with a character name, yeah. you know? And I think, uh, uh, you know, so as an example, um, a while ago now, back in 2006, I went through a pretty heavy breakup. It was all I could think about, but I didn't want to – do the wrong thing by my ex by talking about her because it, it was unfair and uh, and it was very complicated. So instead, I wrote three shows about a character called Calliope, which I 
and and they broke down as the different stages of a relationship. The first show was a very optimistic show about the first throes of love. The second show was the dark, the darkness and the the, the shit that goes wrong. And the third show was uh, about reconciliation of all those thoughts. And I just created, so I wrote a three part show. Um, and I was. Um, like I felt awful because afterwards, because heaps of people would coming up to me saying, "Oh my god, I never knew this that you knew this person Calliope who died." <laughs> I was like, "Fuck no, she's like Calliope." In many ways, was more real than than a lot of people because every every story about Calliope was taken from someone else and jammed into this one vessel for me to be able to express my thoughts. Um, and uh, so. I think that would be a successful kind of POV. I, I did a show called The Goodbye Guy where uh, the character of Calliope ended up representing a, a different stage and a different uh, person for me. And uh, I, I really regret putting that show in the comedy festival because uh, not that I uh, – there was much of it that I loved, but I felt like it should have – in hindsight, it should have been somewhere else and because I could have taken out the stuff that – let it live in the stand-up world. It should have gone somewhere else. Uh, and I feel the same way about, um, you know, the, the the show that that I'm really kind of most proud of and I reckon people fucking hated it uh, was um, Johnny Loves Mary Forever, 1994. Got terrible reviews and people hated it. And uh, <laughs> I, I look back on it and I feel like it's the best written show that I made and uh, uh, like best written show and maybe that's why it didn't work but I uh once again I look back on that show and I go god why I should have I should have done that elsewhere that should have been that should have been in something else that wasn't meant to be in the stand-up comedy world and uh you know I love comedy and I have many regrets what's uh, what's it like when you've written something that you you really like you know the thing that maybe that you're the most proud of and then it just doesn't for Whatever reason, because this is what happens sometimes is like things connect, you know, for certain reasons. Like like Hannah Gadsby's Nanette would be a good show yeah. in any era. Like it doesn't matter if that yeah. it was 10 years ago or 10 years from now. That would still be a good show. But there was also an element of it was the right show at the right time. You know, it was a show about a conversation that the world was having. Sometimes – you know, you just land in a place that the world doesn't want. You know, your show's too serious when people want funny or like, you know, I mean, we had a conversation about this early in Adelaide this year where like it was about tone and, you know, the idea that people who were out actually wanted to, you know, have a good time. That was part of the recovery of, you know, the like the post-pandemic, if you can call it that, you know, the you know, time that we're now in was – that if people had gone to the effort to go out, they didn't want to be lectured to or yelled at. They wanted to, you know, be enjoying themselves. Sometimes, you know, a show doesn't connect for a whole bunch of reasons, I mean, that, you know, you, many of which can be out of your own control. So when you're doing a show like that where you're like, I've done all these shows before, that, you know, the, one, the first one you talked about, the three-parter, one of your most critically, you know, acclaimed shows that you've ever done, people love that show. Like, you know, people still talk about that show. And then you you know, write this other show that you're like, well, this is actually the one that I think is the best written one and it doesn't connect in the same way. What's what's that like? Yeah, it's a bummer. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a bummer. And, um, you know, uh, but and you, and you just have to, you know, you try to, uh, 
you, you, you try to change little bits and pieces and try not to be judgmental about the show because I knew that the show definitively represented what I wanted to do. And, but, you know, you could make, like, it would have been easy to just go, well, I'll just drop this, this, this and this and I'll put in, here's a story about, you know, fucking coughing snot or whatever and that'll make everyone happy. Um, but, uh, you know, I just had to, I just had to stay the course and and try to learn what I could out of it. And then, you know, I don't know if I did learn the right lessons out of that show because the next few years I just did straight stand-up shows, which I couldn't even tell you their titles because I was just not that into it. But then, uh, you know, so so you have that. But then there's also uh, so back in. Uh, Back in 2017, I had a real uh, – I went through a really dark time uh, for, for a number of reasons and, uh, you know, really cut myself off from virtually everyone and spent a lot of time in specifically in this apartment for probably the better part of six months trying to work out what was going on and uh, came through it, did a good job actually, pretty proud of myself. Uh, and I expressed all of that through a show called um, The Ballad of John Tilde Animus. And I fucking love that show. And that show is not for everyone. I'm telling you here and now. <laughs> that show is not for everyone. And I, if you came along and you saw it and you went, what the fuck, tell the coughing snot story, I get it. I'm really sorry. <laughs> but it is the, the, the truest thing I've written and the truest thing I've performed. And what was interesting was I did it in Adelaide and I did it in Melbourne and it worked better in Adelaide because of the way we presented it. And it didn't, it didn't quite land for me in Melbourne because of the way we presented it. And What does uh, that mean? So, to explain that more. So once again, they were three shows and uh, in, in Adelaide, we did them all in a row with a little break and you know, in, in in hindsight, looking back on it, you know, uh, that what what should what should have happened is I just should have edited them down into three sections and done them as one show. But no one was, but they would have. It still would have been like a ninety or a hundred minute show, and and no one's giving me that space in Melbourne. And so, uh, in in Melbourne, we we cut them into three standalone shows, and like the individual bits worked, but as a whole, it's it really got something, you know. It was it was much more cohesive than I actually realised at the time because I was in the middle of it and then halfway through the run I was like, ah, fuck, you know, like because it had such a specific mood to it, the way it used music, the way it used lighting, the way it used audio, the way it used drama mixed in with comedy. It, it, it had such a specific taste to it. You were wasting a lot of time resetting for the second and third shows, even when people are coming along after seeing the previous ones. So I, I you know, so that was one of those things you look back on. You go, "Damn, I wish I'd just done it as a whole once." You know, even once I would have been happier with than the whole run. Why do you think what What is it about you that like makes you write these? <laughs> You know, epic, you know, three hour, I can't fit it into this like space. Here's this high concept. Like, I mean, what is it that drives that approach? As you said, you've done, you know, stand up shows that you can't 
remember. I believe that this year's show, the one that you you know you you'll be doing at the Melbourne Comedy Festival for one night only, people should ca- catch it. But it to, it to me feels like a combination of it feels very stand up in the, that it's just very funny from start to finish and it's presented in a stand up style but i think the concepts really are reflective of the you know the the higher concept themes that you work within it feels a little bit more like you've gone back to the way that the Doug Anthony All-Stars could sing about like fucking dogs in a park, but also reference a whole bunch of, you know, <laughs> like jokes that you'd only get if you'd studied feminist literature at university. And so like to me, you know, they didn't do two different shows that reflected that. They were all just combined into the one, you know, identity. And th- this show that you're currently doing has a lot of that about it. But what do you think, you know, kept – yeah, why? Where did that ambition come from? That like idea that I'm just going to do something that that you're. I mean, you're a smart person. You knew going into these things that they were not going to be for everyone. They were <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> like, so what's what's that about? What's that motivation? Um. Well, I think there is. Sometimes you just got something in you. You got to get it out. You you you. You, like I didn't, I didn't really get into this for any other reason other than I wanted to create stuff and entertain and and I guess I'm a I'm 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 very much a product of the artists that I looked towards as a, as a kid, you know. So um you know like there's there's obvious things you know there is uh you know like like a a, a big transformative moment for me as as a kid was mum taking me to see david bowie in 1983 and and it, the concert itself was phenomenal but it was the going through from 83 going through his back catalog and trying to get your head around all these different versions of him and expressions that came through those different versions so that that was fascinating towards me another major major influence on me was uh dennis potter and the singing detective which was uh, a series that was on in the 80s about uh a, an author called philip marlowe who suffers from psoriasis and he can't move and he's stuck in hospital and to keep himself sane he rewrites one of his novels in his own head. But because he's in so much pain, he's getting confused between the novel, his real world, what actually happened with his wife, childhood trauma and all of the above. And they would break into song at certain points and they would mime to songs. And I would, like, it's one of the most influential moments of my childhood because I just had never seen anything like it before. I was blown away. And it's always been deep down imprinted in my soul. Like I can't can't talk up the experience enough. And, you know, that's why uh, John Tilde Animus felt very much like my Dennis Potter. And my mum noticed it when she came and saw it. She said, oh, you finally wrote your Dennis Potter show. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, um, and to be honest, I didn't realise it at the time. It wasn't until mum said it. And funnily enough, um, and I've, I've always loved uh, movies as well. Uh, 
and the, the the other the other comment that came out of that show that was hugely influential on me was uh, our friend Tom Gleason came along and he said in that very Tom Gleason way he said I really enjoyed it you're very cinematic with what you do on stage and I was like oh yeah this is this does feel I'm not saying necessarily cinematic but it does feel like a visual uh, exercise also through through the 80s um you know I discovered the work of Alan Moore and Alan Moore was marrying high art and low art together in such a way that it was like it was mind-blowing I, I feel very disappointed by the comic book medium because that's what I grew up on and that brought you know Neil Gaiman and Grant Morrison and Peter Milligan and all, all these, Jamie Delano, all these great uh, artists like Jill Thompson, all these great creatives who were creating stuff that I didn't really understand for the most part, but I wanted to understand. Or even if I understood on a surface level, I knew there was, I knew there was something underneath and if I dug into it, I would be rewarded. And that's the work that I've always aspired to. And sometimes... That's why I think sometimes I I wish I was in a different medium because, you know, people just want to laugh at a stand-up show. So stop fucking doing your highfalutin crazy shit. Well, I mean, yeah, I understand. Okay, so it's interesting (laughs) what you say because I do think that, you know, as I talk to you in the background, there's, you know, bookshelves full of movies and comic books that you like and, (laughs) you know, a poster of David Bowie. Like you are a person who – That you bought. A person who, um, you know, you you are passionate about things and you give things the creative respect that you imagine the creator of that work hoped for. You know, you're somebody who will sit with something, watch something, watch it over and over, think about it, like think about what the themes are about it. Like, you know, and you are attracted to the sort of work that has that work in it. So... The fact that you've then tried to take elements of that into a world where that level of – I'm sure there are people who do watch comedy shows and think about them the way that you think about these things, but it's not the majority of people and that's unfortunately the problem. Like if you were doing your work in a fringe festival or at an arts festival or as part of like a you know something else that is outside that space where the – the reviewer or the audience are going along to go, you know, this show will have a theme and it'll challenge me on some level and it'll shock me or blah, 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 or, you know, like I want to see the composition or the way that it's staged or, you know, these sort of things. There there are elements like of comedy that definitely can fit within the comedy world and can elevate the comedy world, but they're not fully appreciated. Nobody's – you, you hope when you make a piece of work that – you know, I think you've probably thought about Christopher Nolan movies as much as Christopher Nolan thought about his movies. Whereas I don't think anybody thinks about your show or my show or anybody's show as much as we in making the show have thought about the show. Yeah, you are so correct. <laughs> and I have a good 45-minute theory on why Tenet is a masterpiece and was him making his version of a Sator Square. Yeah. But anyway, that's for another <laughs> time. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it, you know, but that was the stuff that appealed to me, you know, and uh, I, I sometimes think, look, I'm not complaining. Like I've had, like I've had a career in comedy as well. So, um, you know, you gotta, you got to realise that – 
you know, hard work and a bit of luck and a few things breaking your way mean that you have been able to exist in this world for a long time. And and even though there have been setbacks, uh, they've been overcome as well. But uh, sometimes, you know, as things shift and as things take on a new life of their own and as as things develop, in a way, I feel like, uh, you know, I wished I hadn't presented those uh, ideas in that format at those festivals because I feel like maybe they would have been better off being one-off performances that your audience can find you and the people who want it can find you and don't come in with a set of presumptions that you're going to be wearing a black T-shirt and black pants talking into a microphone about stuff, you know. And it's no, it's not the audience's fault. Yeah, they've come along with what they think it's going to be, and then suddenly you're dancing by yourself to fucking songs from the fifties, and people are like, "What? What? <laughs> what just happened?" So, um, I, I think that's the the creative frustration. But I also, I mean, you know, I mean, would you ever like do those things in other spaces? Because those works of like this is the difference between you know our world as well, where there's this constant like you've done it, you can't do it again, fuck off. <laughs> Like, you yeah, know, what's right. new? Yeah. Like, as, but, like, could you not take one of those shows to a fringe festival or could you not take one of those shows to a different space or create a, like, you know, thing of, like, you know, find a theatre and, like, once every, you know, three months stage a different, you know, thing of, like, I, I don't know, but is there, like, are, the, are those works done forever and you have to create something new or... Is there like versions of those works that could could live in a different space? Well, I I hope so, but uh, I also think that and I'm I'm only going by my experience as well. So I'm not saying this is everyone's or uh, you know across the board. But uh, I I did kind of uh, contact places about putting on those shows, and you know that one uh, best show at the Adelaide Fringe, you know, which is. Uh, well, once again, I don't necessarily buy into awards. I think uh, I think you have to. I think they're very nice, and I think they are an acknowledgement. But you also have to be lucky that the right people came along and saw whatever you did and were on board for it. Uh, but I hoped that the narrative of winning that award would translate into being able to take it to different places, and there just didn't seem to be uh, any real interest. You know, it's. Uh, it's a, it's a very interesting time to be a creative because there's certain things that people are interested in and there's certain things that people aren't interested in. And I know that my, my feeling is that within the industry, there is a lot of affection, but that affection is through the prism of working on other people's stuff. And so uh, the, the stuff that I find interesting and the, the stuff that I find that I would like to uh, perform in the past has uh, – look, in everyone's defence, it's fucking hard work, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? Like, like I know that, you know, like I, I say this with I, – I can't, I can't stress how respectful yeah. I am when I say this, but I feel the – fucking pure panic that my management have when I present fucking John Tilde Animus. 
do you know what I mean? It's like they've got shit on. Yeah. And I've got to I've got to I've got to show that if you were to sum up is about a man seeing a pigeon die and he goes into a crisis. Like it's you know, and even that's not correct. But the, you, you know, it's 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 the world's busy, the world's cluttered, and and things are expensive. And so, if you see one of these shows and you go, "Oh, well, I reckon we could probably only lose this amount of money," <laughs> it's not that much incentive for you to follow through with it. And I get that as well. Yeah, I get- which makes me think that I'm in the wrong. Mm. Th- th- this is why the work that I'm doing now. Sorry to interrupt, but the work I'm doing now is being channeled into something else that I think could potentially have more opportunity to live. Mm-hmm. So talk to me then about because what I'm interested in is you're at a you know stage of your life appointing your career where like what is the driving motivation to create like when you sit down because like as you said some of the practical aspects of your career the job aspects of your career aren't necessarily you know where you're being you know fully creative or at least fully creative in a way that is just serving you and your creativity it's serving other people's creativity as much as it's serving your own doesn't mean you're not being creative but it's in the service of something else so when you're making something in the service of yourself like what is What's the prevailing motivation? Like, what are you trying to say or do when you're creating your own work? You know, uh, so that's a good question. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm a big believer in art entertaining and I'm also in many ways a populist. And if you can get that entertainment to as broad a range of, po- of people as possible who some can enjoy it on a surface level and then people who are in, a little bit more like me can dig into it and they can find something else, then that, that would be my ultimate goal. I, I, don't think, I don't think I've even come close to achieving anything. Like I don't, I, don't, I honestly, I honestly, there's stuff that I'm happy with and stuff that I think you know was on its way, but uh, I, I still have a belief that my best work is in front of me, regardless of anyone else, because I know that I'm still learning and I know that I'm still finding things out about myself and I still have a curiosity, and I'm, uh, I'm not afraid to put in the hard work, even though sometimes, you know, you know what it's like. You read the first draft of something and, and it's really hard not to set yourself on fire and throw yourself <laughs> off the balcony, you know? Like it's really hard, but you've got, you got to get that shit down and get it out of your system. But the the thing that – so I've always, I've always felt quite lonely and I've always felt alone and it was through um, – it was through art and and entertainment that you found that you weren't unique in that feeling. And knowing that you're not unique in that feeling is incredibly liberating and and reassuring. And to know that there's people out there who have similar ways of seeing the world and, and feeling about things, if you can create something that entertains those people, 
and also shows them that you know they're not alone i think i think that's something to aim for and and i've always been attracted to uh funny sad like funny sad is my wheelhouse even even absurd absurd into into sad something that not even well, not even sad melancholic mm-hmm. uh that's always been the the stuff that i've been most attracted to and that, and 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 that, and that can be something as wild as grant morrison's run on the comic book animal man that can be broadway danny rose that can be uh you know the Ziggy Stardust album, <laughs> you know, like kind of ending on something that is quite emotional and uh, and is earned, uh, and something that just has something more to say is uh, what I'm what I'm desperately trying to achieve before you know, whenever everything ends, you know. And what's like, I don't mean that in a dark way, but I just mean um, you know, just create that. I mean, everything is going to end as I. Yeah. As I said in my book, I'm not fine, thanks. Available uh, at all book, uh, good booksellers. <laughs> we are now at, uh, officially at an age where if we died, it would be sad and people would be sad that we died a little bit young. But we've lived longer than most people in the history of humanity got to live in their lives at this point. And if we drop dead now, people would be sad, but they would not launch a coronial inquest. Like we are of that age now, right? And so what's the point of the work like do you want to be remembered do you want to have something that lasts beyond you do you just want to know how it feels to fully realize you know whatever it is that's inside you what's the point of it well when i was younger the um it was definitely so i was brought up a an atheist Mm -hmm. from a from a very young age and uh the idea of, um, you know, living on through your work was something that was very appealing to me. I, I'm, I'm talking like seven, eight years old, nine years old. Like I was thinking about that stuff. You know, when you'd hear about Shakespeare, it was like, oh my god, like what a what a monumental achievement. And then and then you kind of get older. I've had uh, you know bouts of depression and. Um, you know, have and haven't coped with it. And, you know, they're, they're, you get older and you realise that you want to you wanna live on by living. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. I'd <laughs> like, rather live right now than live on after yeah. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, it doesn't mean you shouldn't express yourself and, uh, you know, the, 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 the chances that you will be remembered, you know, I'm guessing – Slim. You know, I <laughs> Slim. Yeah, I'm guessing ten years after, you know, I finally shuffle off this mortal coil, people will be like, Ah, Jason was good. But <laughs> the, the the thing is, um, if if you can create something that because I, I think the world is is a mess. I think the universe is extremely cold and I think it's extremely lonely and I, I think uh I think a lot of bad things happen in this world through selfishness and a lack of empathy. But I also think the world is beautiful and I also think the universe is stunning and there's 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 this opportunity to be able to kind of connect with people. And connecting with people 
it's it's the most important part of life. That probably the most perfect, beautiful relationship I've had was uh, with uh, I, I was in Paris and I was catching a um, I was catching a train back to London and there had something terrible had happened on the train tracks and there was chaos and we were being moved around and then I got moved onto a um, a train that was packed and I got the last seat and when I got there there was two seats and there was there was a woman sitting there and she had papers she was writing stuff she had papers all over my side and her side and all all that kind of stuff and I was like oh I'm sorry that that's my seat and she just looked at me as if to say fuck I thought I had this to myself you know I get yeah, that feeling totally. you know it's like this train's about to take off I'm 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 home and hosed anyway we sat down and then uh it was pretty awkward and she was obviously hating me. Uh, and then a, an announcer said, oh, we're going to be another 45 minutes. And I was like, oh, my God, another 45 minutes. And then I just was like, fuck it. And I said, hey, I'm going to get a drink. Do you want a drink? And her face immediately changed and she was like, yeah, I do want a drink. So I, anyway, I went off and bought some wine and then, you know, we just sat there and uh, we drank wine and then because we were there for so long, we ended up drinking not a huge amount but enough that it loosened us both up and uh, we shared a lot of uh, kind of, the kind of stories that you share with strangers that you, you feel like you, you never share with your closest friends or family and uh, we just kind of really bonded and then um, at one point she went off. She she was coming out of a really bad breakup and she was this uh, – stunning French woman. <laughs> she was stunning. Like it was, it was almost cliche mm. how, how beautiful and French she was all at the same time. <laughs> and so, um, I, uh, uh, and, and she, she had really low self-esteem as well, judging from what we were talking about. And so I wrote, uh, on a piece of paper, I think you're beautiful. And I slipped it into her diary. And then we got to London and we said goodbye and that was it. And uh, I think very fondly of that moment. And I think there was something, uh, I think there was something very beautiful about it. And I think there was, it was, it, it wasn't tainted by the experience of life. It was, it, it couldn't be dragged down into the, the mundaneness of everyday existence. It, it couldn't, it couldn't have a, a moment where it, it was ruined, where I said, so, uh, I like David Bowie and she says I hated him and you go well this has ruined everything. You know, it was it was it was a pure connection at a moment in time and hopefully at some point she found that note and it meant something at that point. But who knows? And that's all right. And that I think that's what my work is. <laughs> think that that is also sometimes what your life is in regard to like because you love stories so much and these little you know vignettes or you know perfect stories that like you do tend to maybe is that like a way you view the world as well like the idea that like that's a nice perfect story because like it had an ending and like you know it's got a little bit of a mystery at the end you know did she find the note where was she when she found the note like I mean is there because you spent so much, like you said, you're an only child, single, 
you know, parent household. So like a lot of time alone, you've referenced like being alone and, and loneliness a few times during this. And you clearly found connection with the world through art and stories and, you know, these sort of things. It, like does that very much affect, do you think, the way that you actually the prism through which you view the world? Do you sometimes view it like alone from your apartment and then through these, you know, these stories? Uh, yeah, like it's – once again, I, I feel like the uh, – when you talk about these things – and it's funny because, you know, you asked me to do this podcast and, and it, you – it's a very different thought process mm-hmm. in the lead up to it <laughs> because, you know, when we do FOFOP, there is no thought process and then we start talking and then suddenly we're talking about starseeds <laughs> and uh, Ted Lasso. But to really look into yourself is, and, and wonder what you're going to end up talking about and what you feel comfortable sharing and it is it is the fact that I I'm, I just feel like I'm a a mess of contradictions and and I don't necessarily think that mess is a bad thing and and sometimes sometimes seeing the world through stories and expression is a good thing and sometimes I think it can be a bad thing because bad narratives can take hold in many ways I'm full of emotion um, and in some ways I'm a cold fish. Sometimes I'll I'll care about someone to such an extent it will cause me pain when they're in pain, and then sometimes there's some friends that I go ah you know what this has been great but this is done yeah. that was good twenty five years uh. <laughs> Let, let's not ruin it <laughs> you know it, it's um and I don't I don't really know how to explain it so something happened to me when I was uh, a kid where so I was I was quite sickly as a kid and uh, I was born with a kink in my bowel. And they thought I was going to have to have an operation, but this guy was a guts and I ate so much I straightened it out by myself. Mm. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I was just kind of sick all the time. Just And, um, and I came from, uh, you know, mum raised me uh, by herself and uh, a very honest woman. You know, she never wanted to lie to me. So I knew from a very young age that my father just wasn't interested in me. So, uh, and I can't. Like you, knowing that from a young age is weird because it's because you don't know that you should be upset by that. You just go, oh, okay, and you just take it as a fact. But um, when I was in grade two, uh, I ended up really sick one night. I ended up with meningitis, pleurisy, and pneumonia, and I had this moment of uh, my grandfather knew I was sick because I said I had to go to bed, and it was like still daylight. <laughs> that's when he got in touch with mum and said, hey. Uh, and uh, I ended up, um, and I know that this was a hallucination, but I was in such agony and my head felt, felt like it was going to explode. And uh, I hallucinated the roof of the house that I lived in being taken off and two white energy things looking down at me and leaning down and picking me up. And then my next memory was in hospital in, in agony. And um, it, it, it was funny. Uh, I, I, I've thought about this recently. Even then I had comedy. I, I'd been pumped so much full of drugs that I, I couldn't go to the toilet. And when I was finally able to pass, I, I, I shit a, something that 
was quite massive. And I said to mum, if we paint this white, it could be a softball. <laughs> and that's when mum knew I was okay because I made a joke. <laughs> so the jokes have always been pretty important. But um, I, I was out of school for a long time. I had, to have a, I had to have a spinal tap because of the fluid building up in my head. And um, the next few months at school were fascinating because I felt like I didn't belong anymore. I felt like I was not in the way of the world. I felt like I was removed from it. And uh, I think that feeling has followed me for a, for a long time. You know, it's strange uh, to be full of emotion and not know how to express it or not know how to tap into it. And sometimes when I do tap into it, it's, you know, sometimes it's too much. <laughs> or it can be, you know, coming at you in size 28 Helvetica font or it's, uh, you know, sometimes it's whispered. And uh, I think a lot of it is, I think a lot of it comes down to, if I'm being really honest, protecting myself. If you kind of overhear a little bit, you can't be too upset when shit goes pear-shaped or someone inadvertently lets you down or something doesn't work out the way you hoped that it would work out. I don't think that's particularly healthy either. Do you know what the fear is? Like, you know, is there a particular fear? Is there something that is the big fear? Yeah, yeah, I don't want to be alone. Yeah. So so you <laughs> keep yourself by yourself. So that <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but it's it, it so when when I was a kid growing up in uh, West Croydon, uh there was the the local gang, the CMFs. Croydon motherfuckers, big shout out. <laughs> used to ride around on uh, push bikes, and uh, I used to play basketball. And uh, I would uh, I'd sometimes, because uh, Mum and I, you know, uh, I, I didn't go without, mm. but we were poor, yeah. like we were properly poor. And it, it, it's something that you, I think, being raised poor, it's funny you you never shake it, and people don't want to hear it. Like in the past when I've tried to talk about it, uh, I've had people kind of shout me down because they think I'm being cruel to mum or that I'm exaggerating or whatever, but I'm not. That's what it was and it's something that you never, never shake. I think you can see it in some of our contemporaries as well. You know, you just never shake that and, uh, and it affects you in all these different ways. But anyway, so I used to get picked up to go and play basketball on a Friday night and to get to where I'd be picked up uh, was on the other side of this park where the CMFs used to hang out. And um, look, to be honest, I could have asked my friend to come to my place or I could have gotten them to meet me somewhere else or I could have taken the long way around. But I, even though I was scared, I thought, fuck it, I'm going to walk through this fucking park. I don't give a shit. I'm going to walk through this park and I would have rocks whizzing past my head how I never got here, like <laughs> CMF should have fucking spent more time on their aim than their smoking. But uh, but I I would force myself to go that way, you know. And uh, sometimes the the things that you fear the most are the things that you. I find that I try to embrace, for better or worse, to try and get a hold of them. Um. So uh, I ask people on this show traditionally. Um, what they think happens when you die. You mentioned earlier that you were raised, you know, I mean, you, there is a part of me that thinks that, you know, part of the reason that you clung on to stories so much when you were younger 
has to do with the fact that your mum was so honest about the fact that normally kids get raised with it. Well, not normally, but like there was an era definitely where kids got raised with a religion. And that was the story and the narrative and the characters that they all needed to get their heads around. But you were raised without that, you know, perspective on life, a much more realistic perspective on life. So probably, you know, there was a part of you that needed to find that guidance and those stories in actual stories as opposed to something that people are dressing up and pretending is true. But what does it mean now that, you know, how do you think about, you know, death? Do you think about death? Like what is your attitude when it comes to death? Like, you know, um, what do you think will happen when you die? Like do you have any broader beliefs about that? You know, it's. Uh, I feel like I've started every sentence with "you know." Um, the well, I do know mostly. <laughs> this is the one. Right. This is the <laughs> one conversation where mostly when you say "you know," yeah, I ha- I do know. I haven't known it all though. There's been a couple of things in this that I definitely haven't known, so I'm pretty happy about that. I've dug deep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I'm a people pleaser, and I was desperate to keep you engaged. So. Uh... <laughs> I think um, I think death is everything. I think it's uh, I think it's really scary. I think it's um, I think it's probably a release. There's many emotions that you can apply to death. I don't think anything happens. I think once it's done, it's done. We're gone, and that's it. I don't think you experience anything ever again, and it's over. And that's eternity. That's for a while there, I kind of uh, dug into Gnosticism and I personally think we're a one in a whatever moment in, in the universe. I, I I don't believe that there's other life out there. I'm very Fox Mulder. I want to believe, but I don't believe it. I think we are something that happened by accident. We have developed in a way that has been awful in in many ways. We're like we're removed from nature, and because we're removed from nature, we've forgotten to know how to uh, embrace it and hold it and look after it. But on the other hand, we also create music and we we write books and we create movies and we paint and we 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 carve people out of marble and you know. So once again, it's 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 all very messy and. And once it's done, it will be done. And I, I kind of like the Gnostic idea that we are here as a part of the universe and we're here to observe it. And we're here to observe as much of it as we possibly can. So when we leave, the universe absorbs us and in some way knows itself. I don't necessarily believe that, but I would like to believe that. What I do hope for everyone is that they come to some form of acceptance with who they are and some sort of peace in their final seconds. So then when it's time to go, they enter a a very lovely dreamlike state where the people that they care about will be there. Maybe some strange people will be there that you weren't expecting. And then you can just be in this very nice dreamlike world until that eventually dissipates. I am interested because you are someone who has consumed so many stories, you know, like particularly, yeah, when it comes to, 
you know, like like a, a lot of the writers that you're interested in, comic book writers, like you know, those they they explore the very nature of existence. You know, what the purpose of it is, why we are here. Like in a broader sense, you you said you talked about the idea of the observation, but what do you think in a day to day sense? Like the purpose of your life is. <sighs> On an everyday, yeah. it's, uh, you know, it's getting, it's doing your best to not be fueled by the more negative aspects of who you are. So I, I think I've had that happen in the past. I'm fighting something at, at this, for the last week, I am fighting something so full on, which is the opportunity for a job that I do not fucking want to do. There's not one aspect of me that wants to do any of this job because <laughs> I can't see, apart from being able to pay rent, yeah. I can't see any reason to do it. And I know rent's a big mm. thing. That That is know. a reason. It's not, it's that, not that, like that, there's no reason. The one reason no. and the one, the only reason is that rent needs to be paid. Right. But I also have holiday money that I'd been putting away for a while and I just don't figure I'm going to have a holiday anytime <laughs> soon. So why don't I just dig into that and continue working on these projects that I've mm-hmm. been working on? So I, I spend a lot of time trying to make sure that when I make a decision, I make it as correctly as I possibly can in that moment. So it's a lot of overthinking and uh, – and, and, you know, to be honest, sometimes uh, when people get in touch with me and say, hey, I need to talk about something, I'm like, oh, thank fuck, because I am done with me for today. Like, this is great. Well, that's good. <laughs> that feels very personally directed at me and all the emotional time and labour that no. I take from you. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> to be honest... To be honest, there's a there's a call waiting. <laughs> like there's, a, there's there's a few there's a few people out there, but it's um, but I also know that because of grappling with those things, I, I know I can be good for that. You know, and it can also remind me. Like it's a it's a two way dialogue. Do you know what I mean? It's something that informs yourself. So I feel like my everyday existence is to not let not let doubt. And setbacks stop me from doing what I'm hoping that I can achieve in the future. So, looking to the future also, I, I guess, means examining what has come beforehand. So, I, I, I asked people, I, we used to ask people on this show, I don't know what I do anymore, but I used to ask people on this show if, if I had a time machine. Uh, and I could take you forward or backwards in time. It's it's a round trip, but you only get one trip. You can change something or you can observe something. Um, like, firstly, would you take the trip on the time machine? It's perfectly acceptable for your answer to be no. Like, you can you can say no, thank you. I'll just like, but would like if if it was available, would you take it? Oh yeah, without a doubt. Mm. And, and would you uh, go forward in time or backward in time? Ah, see, that's interesting because that also – I think that boils mm. down to what you want to achieve from uh. it. So on the one hand, I could go back to that first time that I saw David Bowie and because I was at Adelaide Oval in 1983 and some very nice stranger put me on his shoulders. 
and I'd be wrapped if I was that stranger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out it was you from the future boosting yourself on your own shoulders. Yeah. This is very yeah. Come here, little very, fella. This is going to be great. This is this is this is going to both make your life and ruin everything. <laughs> Yeah, this is um, this is uh, the most important experience you're going to have, and I can't wait to uh, experience it with you. And um, good luck. Uh, but then there's a uh, so there is maybe from a work point of view, there was a producer who spoke to me uh, after Three Colors Hammo, a UK producer who was really keen to bring it over, and uh, through circumstances it never happened, and. Uh, I would go back in time and I would really encourage me to, hey, I I think, I think, I'm not saying that I had like, like I think I'm a much better stand-up comedian now than I was Mm. 20 years Mm. ago or 15 years ago or even five years ago. You know, I think it's just something that happens with experience and if you're honest with yourself and you try to keep up with the way the world is changing, you can change your language and you can learn and through learning you have new ideas and you can be more interesting and funnier in the process. But just from where I would like to be now, I would go back and and encourage me to go – I. I think you've gotten as much as you can out of stand-up at this point and I think the next lot of ideas are going to be better served in a different environment and I think you you need to follow this person and see what happens. And, you know, who knows? It might have been a – it doesn't mean – the worst thing about life is the moments where you don't know. Yeah, yeah and, so and sometimes you can do it and about. find out. Sometimes you're like – yeah, I was thinking about this during COVID, like really, you know, like I was disappointed that obviously the thing that I was most passionate about, you know, had gone away. But there was also a really realistic part of me that was you like didn't get to do everything that you wanted to do, but you at least had a crack at like a, an opportunity. And sometimes, you know, I mean, that I re- always remember the my biggest regret and like if I had this opportunity, my absolutely my biggest regret was that I had somebody, you know, kind of doing the same thing with me with Letterman and just because of the situation in my life, I didn't pursue the thing, I didn't put the work into it, I didn't feel ready, I didn't feel whatever it was, like all those things and then the opportunity just went by and, yeah, it could never happen again and I always regret that because I didn't give it a proper shot. Like, you know, I like I gave other things a proper shot and they didn't work out. I wasn't good enough, you know, or, or whatever. I got to audition for The Daily Show. I didn't get it. They didn't want mm. me. That's fine. Mm. No, that's a whole different thing. But, like, I got to do it. Like, I got to, you know, put, throw my hat in the ring and see if, like, I could do it. The fact that I didn't get to, I can live with the fact that I didn't get to do it. It's harder to live with the fact that you'd you know, miss that opportunity to give it a go. And I, so I totally understand, understand that. I, I that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Well, well, I think that's why where I'm at now with work is, you know, I'm trying, I'm working in a different medium and I don't know if, if what I'm working on will amount to anything, but I, I, I'm loving it and it feels like I'm in the right medium and the process which has always been the addiction 
it's the process that is the most inspiring and the, the bit that has you itchy, wanting to get back into it. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's what the near future is, is trying to juggle maintaining an ability to uh, live and also explore those other mediums and and maybe finally hunt down your white whale and 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 create that thing that you feel like it uh, achieves everything you wanted to achieve. Well, a part of that I think also has to do with like you know the, the, when Richard Feidler told you what was good about stand up, he also trapped you a little bit because it's also what's bad about stand up, which is that it is both immediate but also in 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 the grand scheme of things quite disposable. The majority of mm. it, it is like you know there are things mm. that are timeless, but very few things when it comes to stand-up comedy. You know, like comedians often don't age well, and you know, you you you're the sort of projects you're talking about are things that take years to develop and maybe years to stage or do or you know whatever the thing might be. You know, they're longer-term projects. They're not you know something you're turning around in in a year and an idea. But you talked about something that I thought was interesting to talk about in this in this sphere. And again, this is something that I, you know, I, I am familiar with what your thoughts are. We have conversations about this a lot, but I'd love to have one for the podcast, which is we are of an age where so many of our contemporaries, and I don't just mean in Australia, I mean people who are similar era to us worldwide. You know, you know, big famous comedians who are similar era. Dave Chappelle and I are the same age, you know, so like a lot of them have moved into a very reactionary stage of their careers where, you know, it's all about, you know, new things being weird and, you know, to be mocked and old, you know, that it, it feels very reactionary, this, this style of humour. And I was watching yet another comedian the other night in their, like another famous comedian in their, in their Netflix special do another chunk about trans people that was just the same as you know, all the other bad chunks about trans people that you've seen in these, you know, kind of big middle-aged men specials. So, like, what's your perspective on changing, developing, like, you know, like, I mean, this is, I guess, at the moment, all I get asked in interviews, like, doing promo for the current show is, oh, it must be tough to say things these days. You can't say anything anymore. Cancel culture, blah, blah, blah. Like, hey, what are your thoughts on these topics, Justin? I ask as if I do not know. <laughs> tell tell people <laughs> tell people who don't talk to you regularly what your thoughts are on this topic. I, so I, I very much believe in freedom of speech. Yes. I think freedom of speech is paramount and you should be allowed to – express yourself and it's like if you are deliberately, you know, getting together the new Adolf Hitler fan club of 2023, maybe maybe you don't get to speak. But but the, the, the general idea of expressing yourself, you should be allowed to touch on anything. I, If you want to talk about trans people, that's that's your business. But my, my theory is fucking why? <laughs> Just like the the universe is made up of everything, and you can talk about everything. Don't they have it hard enough? Like that that you're coming in with your fucking hot take, that your clever response, that you said this so you can say this, so you can make a point that has thousands of people clapping. Like, like there's a responsibility to stuff. And I, I also, I say this knowing that 
over time, you know, there's definitely been times when we've all overstepped oh. the mark as comedians. And sometimes sometimes it's an ad lib that doesn't land. Sometimes you've thought something through and you've and you've told it. And then it's not until like years later that you go, Oh God, that routine did not work at all. Why 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 was I doing that routine? Oh, I know why, because there was a quick turnaround to do another Melbourne Comedy Festival show and I, I should have given that routine another year and then I probably would have dropped it because <laughs> I would have known that it didn't work. So I understand yeah. I, look, overstepping I, the I, mark. I have done it plenty of times. There are plenty of jokes that I used to do that I would not do today and I don't. Like, you know, that's that was my reaction to those jokes. Like if one of them turn if one of them turns up and people go, I can't believe you said that thing, I'd be like, Yeah, me neither. That's why I absolutely don't say that thing anymore. <laughs> like I didn't understand enough about that topic or I was young and I was trying to be edgy or whatever the explanation is. But I find it weird that people who are at our stage of their careers are writing new material about these things. I'm not talking about somebody finding some joke by these people from 20 years ago that was about trans people. I would be like, well, with, they didn't understand. And as long as they're not making jokes like that now, who like then, uh, yeah, there's some level of forgiveness there. But but it's weird that people would be writing new material about that. I mean, again, people can say whatever they want to say. And I'm not even here to say they shouldn't be able to say these things. I think they should be judged, like you, you should be able to judge them and we should be able to have a conversation about, you know, people saying these things. But I really wanted more your perspective on like changing and, you know, how you've, how you make sure that you don't become one of those people that thinks that everything was better in the olden days or that new comedians are no good because, you know, they're not the comedians from our generation or like, you know, that sort of I'm old and bitter and, you know, I hate the next generation thing. Like how do you manage to not become that? Well, most importantly, once, once you've been a stand-up comedian for a long time, you have been a product for a long time and you think of yourself in a certain way and it becomes really dangerous when you start to believe that you're a truth sayer. <laughs> and I, I think, I think when you feel that you have a responsibility yeah. to tell strangers yeah. the truth, I think because the truth is locked, the truth is a fact. And the fact is, is that truth is changing all the time and truth is different per person. And so the way to, for me, to not get locked into that way of thinking, like, don't get me wrong, I've got some hardcore truths that I'll stand by, but they are The Leftovers is the greatest TV show of all time. It's not. It's, but when it comes to young people and new people, you, you've got you've to maintain a level of curiosity. You've got to, when someone does something and, like, I remember, remember when Josh Thomas first started performing stand-up? He was so fascinating because all his jokes were in completely different rhythms to anyone who'd come before. And and then and then you started seeing his rhythm, not his jokes, but his rhythm mimicked by other people. And that was fascinating. And and you sitting there going, "Oh, well he put the joke in there and he's coming from this angle and he's saying this and it, it was really informative to me. And, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to know Josh at that age and do a little bit of work with him. And, you know, sometimes the, the way he would approach things was 
confronting to your methodology, not to you as a person. And so part of the, one of the things that I love about working on Question Everything is specifically the young comedians who come in with their different takes and their different ideas and their different approaches to things. And I get a real kick out of being a conduit to helping them find a way to to make it come across as succinctly as possible without losing their flavour on, on a TV show. So I think that's just maintaining a level of curiosity, but also, you know, getting back to what we were talking about at the start, you, you've got to drop cynicism. You've, you've got to drop it. Like it, 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 will, it will destroy you. And if you are if, – if you maintain a cynical attitude as you get older – and I once again, I don't mean sometimes you have to be cynical, but if that is one of your major flavours of who you are as a person, being an optimist and saying that you like things sets you up for a lot of people to tell you you're wrong and that you're that you're a shithead. But it also, but being cynical all the time, it's it's not allowing yourself to enjoy things, not not allowing you to be open to things, seeing seeing a mistake in something that's presented to you and that's what you focus on rather than everything around it. And so that's that's how I try to maintain a, a level of not just relevancy in comedy but just as as a person, you know, be be relevant. Like I've got one of my best friends has two daughters who are now 21 and 17, I think, 22 and 17, and um, they taught me all about K-pop. I'm not into it. Like, I'm not into it at all. But I thoroughly enjoyed sitting with them for hours, and it was hours because I could tell by the look on my mate's face as if to say, mate, what are you doing? You're meant to be here giving me respite from this. But it was um, – they, they talked to me about K-pop and why they loved it and why they were into it and who this person was and who that person was. And did you know they were going out? And it was really intoxicating to be around it. So then when, you know, people my age go, eh, K-pop, I'm like – Seems great. Seems like uh, the kids who are into it are really getting a lot out of it. So, you know, who gives a shit? Yeah, I think there's a you can be curious about something without having to be – let them become a big K-pop fan. Like, I mean, I learned a lot about K-pop for – we were doing a Gruen segment on K-pop and uh, like so I watched – there was a documentary about Blackpink, which is one of the K-pop acts, and then there was something, some other big group that I was – anyway, at the time I found it all quite fascinating. It didn't leave me with, like, you know, curiosity doesn't mean that I then have to, like, download a whole bunch of K-pop and start listening to K-pop. I can just go, okay, I've got my head around what K-pop is and what people like about K-pop. I don't actually need to become a K-pop fan. I'm just using that as an example. But, yeah. Um, so curiosity is good. How do you then... Uh, by, by the way, I just I, I need to say to you, 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 you probably remember this. I saw Dunkirk, didn't really, like knew of Harry Styles but didn't know anything about him. Watched him in that, thought he was really good. Then his album came out, quite liked the first song. I listened to that three or four times. It was great. Mm. It wasn't for me. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought it was I thought it was really well done and I, I got why people were into it. Yeah, I, that's yeah, that 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 idea that you you, you cannot be into something yourself but also understand why other people enjoy it, I think is that's a good place to get to because that's where all that resentment, then it doesn't be, you can just say, oh, yeah, okay, I get why that person is successful. It's not for me, yeah. but like I can yeah. understand it and I can understand the joy that it's bringing other people. Um, 
I am conscious about like, you know, this not going forever because it so easily could, but I'm going to ask you some more questions. Um, what is the best or worst piece of advice that you've ever got? I'm happy if you've got one of each or one or either, but like either a bad piece of advice that you yeah, you look back on and go, that was terrible, that piece of advice, or, or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe there's a really good piece of advice that has stuck with you. Do do you mean uh, does it have to have been said directly to me or is it no, something No, it doesn't that... actually. It could like I mean I'm like I mean there's no rules is actually the answer. You can answer it however you would like to answer it. It could be some yeah, piece of commonly held wisdom that you think is completely full of shit. Like for example, that to be a good stand-up comedian you have to go up as often as possible. That is not a universal rule. Like some of the best stand-up comedians in the world don't do club sets or mic sets they develop full shows without ever testing them on stuff like you know anyway maria bamford can do a fucking you know special in front of her parents in a living room and it's as good as anything else that's going around <laughs> like there are no rules to that's a dumb if anyone's ever given some young comedian listening to this the piece of advice that you have to like when you're new at it doing a lot of work is i think is a, a good thing getting a lot of experience all that, but the idea that you then continually have to do that, like that forever, that's a bad piece of advice in my opinion. So it could be something like that that someone didn't directly tell you or and it doesn't have to be work-related. It often is, of course, but it could be life-related or it, and it can be good or bad. Like it doesn't have to be like, you know, it's whichever way you want to go. So I, I feel like some bad advice given to me was from you mm -hmm. when... <laughs> <laughs> When uh, many years ago, you, yeah. you told me that one of the mistakes yeah. I make is that I don't ask enough for help. Mm. And um, I tried to put that into motion quite a few times and it has not worked out. It's not bad advice though. Like I'm, I'm just because it hasn't worked out doesn't mean it's not bad advice. I think it's still good advice. I stand by that advice. <laughs> it, for some reason, it doesn't work for me. Um, anytime I've asked for help, I have, um, you know, not to not not to be melodramatic. I've been left hanging. So, uh, but good stuff came out of it, which is uh, invariably when I need help, I don't look for help, and then I work my way through it. So, um, but anyway, I'm being a bit cheeky with that. Uh, I, I always think, you know, this is boring. I'm so fucking uh, me sometimes but uh th this this turns up on turns up on social media quite a bit these days but uh in the 90s uh, i saw an interview with bowie where he talked about uh when you're being creative it's like going out into the water so just go just go a little bit too far where you can't quite feel your feet and uh it's, it's around that point that something exciting happens and something magical happens with the creative process and uh, I I definitely uh, believe in that like like the you know if we go back to the John Tilde Animus show um, I had no idea if that was going to work <laughs> no idea and it was thrilling like it was thrilling to uh, be right on the precipice of something that over the course of the next three hours was either going to be ta-da or oh no what have I done and I've got to do this again tomorrow so uh, I think from a creative point of view um, I feel like that's probably good advice for a, for a lot of things as well just in in life in general you know get yourself out of your 
I should actually, now that I say it out loud, I should apply it to more things. Um, but uh, yeah, getting yourself out of your comfort zone is, uh, I think, exciting. It's funny that you mentioned water. Like, so two interesting things about you is that, that you don't drive <laughs> and you don't swim. Like, oh, yeah. well, I find those things interesting. Like, I think, you know, <laughs> I just grew up. Ex girlfriends, don't. <laughs> <laughs> Um, do you ever like, is it weird? Like, I mean, to me, just because particularly in Australia, there are plenty of countries around the world where like, you know, not being able to swim isn't such a big deal, but growing up in Australia, 90% of the population lives on the coast and, you know, it's just part of the Australian identity to grow up and to, to swim. And I know the reasons that you haven't, and then driving, you know, is a little similar in that, you know, I think less so these days. There seems to be, you know, like people – but there was – so they were two big parts of like, you know, what it meant to be to be, I don't know, an Australian and an adult or whatever. Mm. Like mm. what does it feel like to to not do those things? Like does it feel like – does it other you or does it just feel very normal to you and you don't think about it at all? It definitely othered me when I was younger. So – so, like, mum didn't drive and we didn't have a car, so I just always caught public transport. And there was no one around to teach me how to drive. There was no one offering to get me behind the wheel of a car or anything. And then, you know, once I got out of um, school and then I worked, you know, did a little bit of working in a hotel like you do, trying to write my short stories. And then I got into comedy uh, at a pretty young age and <laughs> not having a car was really helpful because it meant I wasn't paying for car insurance and a license and petrol and you know you know what it's like in those that those first couple of years like I, I reckon I made like I think I did pretty well in my first year of comedy and I reckon I made like Five grand. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, five grand in your first year. I don't think I made five grand until like my third year. Right. Like, we, you know, we did all right. So, and then that money was put into catching the Firefly bus overnight to get to Melbourne to do gigs and things like that. And then, and then I just didn't drive. Like, it just, it wasn't a big deal to me. And then in my late 20s, my girlfriend at the time, Crack the shits at me because I wasn't driving. And I was like, I, like, I'll pay for petrol. I'm happy to pay for the taxi if you want to drink. Like, it's no big deal for me. Like, I'll, I'll do this instead. And she snapped at me and she said, the reason you don't drive now is because you're afraid. And as soon as she said that to me, I was like, oh, my God, you're right. I am afraid. Like, I'd never even thought about being afraid before. I just didn't drive. But then I'm suddenly thinking, what happens if I have an accident? What happens if I hit someone what happens if i run over a dog like why and then as soon as she said that that then it made it a a, a fearful thing and uh, then i thought well maybe i should overcome that fear and here we are <laughs> <laughs> all right um Justin Hamilton, you have a show at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival for one night only. Well, actually, you're doing two things. Let's plug both of those things you're doing at the Comedy Festival first. 
Oh, yeah. People might have uh, different interests. So uh, on the 16th, which is a 3.30 p.m., uh, 16th of April, 3.30 p.m., I'm doing a live Big Squid podcast. That's my podcast that celebrates art and entertainment. And my guests, Celia Pacola and Josh Earl and I are going to compete against each other to create the great Aussie movie list. So that will be fun. That's just an opportunity. Look, to be honest, it's it's putting in something mechanical that gives us an opportunity to talk up Australian movies and all the brilliant ones that are out there. And the movie Razorback, I will be bringing that up. Uh, and then on the 17th of April, uh, my solo show for one night only at uh, Little Victories at Melbourne Town Hall at 7.45pm. So uh, that is the show that uh, won an award at the Melbourne at the Adelaide uh, Comedy F- Adelaide Fringe Festival. Uh, I highly recommend people go and see that show. Very, very, very funny stuff. Uh, so you mentioned your podcast uh, and t- tell people, because there might be people who've, you know, don't listen to us, our endless hours of boring pop culture chat on Fofop. If you have enjoyed this chat with Justin and you've never heard Fofop before, it's F-O-F-O-P and Justin is a regular guest and we just, you know, uh, laugh and, and talk about nonsense. But if you've enjoyed this, maybe you'll also enjoy those. But yes, Justin has his own podcast and uh, like give people a little bit more of an explanation if this is their first time like hearing about it of the – it's not – you know, it's not an interview podcast like this. It's not a, you know, it's a whole bunch of different things. So I think it's worth just giving a little quick explanation of. Yeah. Well, if you've found me to be messy in this conversation, then the podcast is a pure distillation of me as a person. So it's the Big Squid podcast and, you know, I I have so many different interests. You know, I love movies. I love TV shows. I love music. I love books. Uh, I you know, regardless of the way I've talked about comedy, I do love comedians. And so uh, the, the podcast covers all of that. We have subsections within the podcast. I do a, a subsection called Space Podacy where we go through sci-fi movies. We've got Past the Ammo where author Garth Jones and I go through Ozploitation movies and the genre and discuss that. Uh, I've had musicians on like Imogen Clark talking about this stuff. I've had uh, Chris Herring who uh, 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 published uh, a book that was on on the New York Times bestsellers list. I've had uh, Brett Morgan who directed the uh, Moon Age Daydream documentary. So it's all, it's it's essentially uh, celebrating all of this stuff. And it doesn't mean you can't be uh, critical, but it, the criticism has to come from a place of disappointment. It can't come from a place of, um, you know, celebrating. It's, uh, you know, uh, which still allows it to be funny and fun, but, you know, you're not coming in with that negative thought. And then there's also another subsection within the Big Squid podcast called Beautiful Tales for the Disenchanted, which uh, if you want to hear some of the strange stories that I've written that would not fit <laughs> at all in the stand-up world. Uh, uh, producer Sean Allen and I create these little Twilight Zone tales that go for about 10 minutes if you'd like to check that out as well. Uh, I highly recommend all of that stuff. So please um, go to – and also justinhamilton.com.com. A-U, uh, if yep. you want to um, yeah, find links to all Justin's stuff. Here's a new question. Uh, this is not an original question, but it's a new one. Uh, I was listening to oh, – let's see if I can give it the correct. It was a while ago now, but I believe it was a conversation that Kurt Brunola – do you know Kurt? He worked with Christian Schaal a lot. Did you ever see Christian oh, her yeah, show when yeah. she first came to Australia and she had the, had yeah. the guy that she worked with? Kristen and Kurt, they're both brilliant comedians if people don't know their work, but um, – 
Kurt's a really great deep thinker as well. And he, I think he and Pete had this conversation and I think Kurt m- might have asked Pete this question. So I think I'm crediting the right person, but I'm going to steal it for the purposes of this podcast. Would you prefer to know when you die or how you die? Oh, wow. Maybe when. Because if I know that, if I know the date, yeah. I can finally lock in a holiday. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think when is the only correct answer, by the way. I don't know how, like, anyone doesn't know. I mean, when, then you know how far your life you are through, how much you have to save. Like like you said, whether you should go on that holiday or whether you're going to need that money. Yeah. like. When is very handy information? How? I don't need to know how. Like when would come in yeah. really handy for me saying yes to this fucking totally. job that I don't yeah. want? Yeah, I mean so many of the decisions I make in my life would be guided by me knowing <laughs> when I was going to die. Just let me know. Am I planning for another 30 years or can I make decisions that – like I mean they would be different decisions, wouldn't they? Like I mean if you knew you were going to live 30 years versus you knew you were going to live three years – how different would the life life you would uh, currently living be based on those two scenarios? One, so oh, it's a guarantee like a, one way or the other. You come to you like yeah. you, it's either guaranteed thirty more years or guaranteed three more years. They're your two options. Like, how much does it change your life, and which one of them changes your life more? Do you think? Well, I reckon I reckon thirty years lends itself more to you know what I better get on with mm. things, and then you don't. <laughs> and three years, I better get on with things, and eventually you do. <laughs> well, Justin <laughs> Hamilton, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on Philosophy. Uh, if people enjoy this podcast, uh, then the best thing to do is subscribe to it. Uh, we have a Patreon page, but I'm not really encouraging people to go back to the Patreon page yet because I'm not sure if I can guarantee that you're going to keep hearing episodes. And I know that some people loyally hung on on the Patreon page, um, you know, for all this time already. So, uh, but th- that does exist. Um, you can listen to all the other podcasts that I have uh, at tofop.com. You can find those. But of course, at the moment, there's a couple of things I need to plug, which is I have a book, which is called I Am Not Fine Thanks, which you can buy in places that sell books. And um, I would like to sell all the ones they printed so that next time I want to write a book, they let me write a book again. So if you could buy the book, that'd be really great. And then uh, for free, um, on ABC iView, there is a show called We're Logical, which is my last year's stand-up show that you can watch for free. And my new stand-up show is called Willuminate, and it is currently touring around the country. I've been to a few places already, but there is Melbourne International Comedy Festival, Sydney, Brisbane, uh, Perth, um, Townsville, and some other places to be added after that. Uh, all the details at comedy.com.au if you would like to come out and see a live show. I would like to see you there. Um, All right. I think that's it, Justin. Thank you very much for doing the show. Thank you. Listener.